The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. All right, as we get into God's Word, uh, please pray with me, and uh, then we'll see what the Lord has for us this morning. God, as we look in your Word here at chapter 7 in 1 Corinthians, we're so thankful that you uh, gave us this word, that you captured it, that you've preserved it for all these years, for our help. And I pray for every person who's listening to this message that you would open their eyes and hearts to what it is you'd have them take away. What area of encouragement if they're downcast? What area of challenge and conviction of the sin in their lives. Uh, Multiply the blessing from this chapter, I pray this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. As we get into chapter 7, I want to remind you all who Paul's audience is in Corinth. They're mostly new believers, and they're in a culture that's a mix between New York and Las Vegas, as we've mentioned. So picture this, picture a port city from Pirates of the Caribbean, And you're getting pretty close. Many are Gentiles, but those who are Jews have been steeped in the Old Testament, and they're now wondering, what changes now after Jesus? They also think they're pretty smart, as we've seen, and they tend to boss each other around a lot with overconfident opinions about lifestyle. 1 Corinthians is not actually uh, Paul's first letter to them. It's just the first that is Scripture. And we saw back in chapter 5, verse 9, that he wrote them a letter before. He said, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And they're confused by this statement. Situations are complicated. Many were married as unbelievers, and one of them got saved. How does that apply? Or maybe both are believers, but with a long past of sexual immorality. Or maybe that past was continuing all the way up to the present. In many Roman households, the wife was intended to be chaste. Her purpose was just for procreation, uh, to continue the line with a legitimate heir, while the husbands could have prostitutes or even their slaves for the purpose of pleasure. And out of this scramble of sexual perversion, God is saving people. He's beginning to build his church. Paul says in 6.11, And such were some of you, You have been stained and hurt by your sexual immorality, but you were washed. You were sanctified when you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The stain was washed away. This is good news. You get to start fresh. Well, we don't even know what that really means, they say. And in chapter 7, Paul begins to answer their questions. Now, there was so much wrong that had been reported to Paul that it actually took him six chapters of strong teaching, commands, and do-you-not-know type rebukes before he could even get to their questions. But there's a shift starting in this chapter. And I hope you see Paul's heart shine through as he answers their questions about marriage. He's glad they're concerned They want to understand. They want to be obedient. And he frees them from rules and laws that burden them if they're not from God. 
He teaches them the liberties and the patterns that are good, not just what to avoid. He wants them to please God and be happy with the good gifts that God has given them, including their bodies and sexuality. And I want all of these for you too. You know, as you're cooped up at home 24-7 with each other uh, because of COVID-19, I think these words could be especially um, useful and help for you from the Lord. Many of you have questions about your own marriages and your own complicated and messy backgrounds. The title to my message is Good Answers to Difficult Marriage Questions. Now that title could mean two different things depending on how we read it. Does he mean the questions about marriage are difficult questions or does he mean the questions about marriages that are difficult marriages? And I want to answer those questions with two questions of my own. Is your marriage difficult? Then that's what I meant. This passage has answers for you and hope. Listen to the good answers that God has for you. Is your marriage easy? You know, that doesn't mean you have a good marriage. It could be that you aren't asking yourself the difficult questions. So listen to these great questions and buckle up for the answers. You may be less prepared for them than you think. Well, what should we do about sex in our marriage? We have problems. We have questions. What should I do if I'm married to another believer? Maybe things are bad. Maybe you feel at the end of your rope. What should I do if I'm married to an unbeliever? Maybe they're okay with you being a Christian. Maybe they hate it. How do you handle that? Paul has rich wisdom from God for all of us. Let's look at the first set of good answers to difficult marriage questions in verses 1 through 6. Number one, what should we do about sex in marriage? Let's read verses 1 and 2 together. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote... It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Now you'll notice in your Bible that there are quotes around the statement in verse 1. And virtually all commentators agree that this is a truth statement made by the Corinthians to Paul. And he's either quoting or paraphrasing it from that letter. And he does not agree with it. Now, why would the people in this church think that the moral high ground was complete abstinence from sex? We already saw back in chapter 5 that they were allowing a man to sleep with his father's wife and were proud about being so permissive. Isn't this the opposite? Well, there are several reasons uh, that are possible. It's probably a blend of these reasons, too, because remember, just like any church, this church had a wide variety of people in it. Maybe it's a reaction to Paul's first letter where he told them to not be around people who were sexually immoral. And they're taking it too far, misunderstanding his teaching. Another reason that they might think all sex was bad is that most of it was rampant prostitution, adultery, and homosexuality. They didn't have a concept of healthy, monogamous, God-honoring sexuality. They mostly experienced all the brokenness and pain from it. There was a group, the Epicureans, who taught that you should dive head first into any pleasure you wanted. Some of those indulged in every craving. 
trying to escape pain and suffering through feasting, drinking, and sex. And again, this is, you can picture, the stereotypical pirate's lifestyle. Others sought optimum pleasure, not maximizing pleasure. Because how many hangovers and one-night stands do you have to have before you realize that you're not living the happiest life you could have? Well, no doubt some of these Epicureans were saved, and they were reacting, thinking all sex was morally bad. Third, remember the Greek dualist philosophers who taught that things of the spirit were the things that were morally good, and all things of the body were evil. Well, however it was that they came to the conclusion uh, that abstinence was best, Paul will have none of it. And he will go on to deny it or severely limit it in the following verses. Commentator Gardner gives us a good paraphrase of verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. On the contrary, it is precisely because of the sexual immoralities of which we have been speaking that a man must have his own wife and a wife her own husband. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying that every man and woman should get married. In a few verses, he'll go on to give multiple examples and reasons why that's not the case for all people. What he's saying is, and listen to this, if you're married, instead of avoiding sex with your spouse to be godlier, sleep with your spouse to be godlier. Paul then gives detailed instructions on what proper sexual intimacy should be like between a husband and wife. But before we move on, notice that even here, Paul is very specific and teaches two absolutes. Since most human beings will have sexual relations, they must follow God's order at creation. First, it is exclusive. Each man can only sleep with his own wife, and each woman can only sleep with her own husband. Second, it must be one woman and one man. Anything outside marriage between one man and one woman is sexual immorality. But inside those boundaries, it's good. Let's go on to verses 3 through 5. Read with me. The husbands, or the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except, perhaps, by agreement, for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I've wanted to preach on these verses for a few years now. That may sound weird, but hear me out. There are tens of thousands of books, magazine articles, videos, and blog posts that promise you the secrets to better sex. Most are garbage. Few have any real truth. But here, in these three verses, Paul, a single man, remember, gives revolutionary sex advice of a kind that shocked the Corinthian world and that shocks our modern world today. The words are true, and it is guaranteed to improve your marital intimacy and sex. Paul's teaching will also ask more of you than you're used to giving. Verse 3 says, The husband should give his wife for her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. 
The Corinthians, like us today, were consumed with protecting their rights. Nobody can infringe on my rights. The focus is me. So Paul hones in on this and he says, okay, you're worried a lot about rights. Here's the truth. When you got married, you entered into a covenant, like a contract for life, sealed by God himself. And in that, you made a promise to give yourself to your spouse. And that promise was as real as the promise to give yourself exclusively to your spouse. We could translate verse 3, let him pay to his wife what is owed. This sounds like a duty, but the fact that it is a duty doesn't diminish love or lack of interest in either person. In fact, quite the opposite. Think about this. It's the person who loves themselves that cuts off their spouse to suit their own interests and desires. That is less loving, not more. God isn't lowering our idea of sex. He's raising it. Note how Paul expressly calls this out as mutual. It's not just the woman who should be available to her husband. I love how God elevates the status of women here to deserve respect, faithfulness, and self-control in these verses. Men, your body belongs to your wife. You owe it to her. You promised that when you married her. She owns your mind, so you can't let your lust run rampant. She owns your eyes and your hands, so you can't escape to pornography. Even though most cultures in history have told men to do whatever they need to satisfy their selfish desires, God makes no allowance for it. Ah, but my wife isn't interested as much, or it takes so much effort to get things going, you might say. Who cares? You're under contract. Even higher, you're under covenant before God. And ladies, you made the same promises when you married your husband. Nobody forced you to marry that guy, but now you need to honor your promise too. Your body belongs to your husband. He owns your mind, so you can't let your romantic fantasies of someone ideal sweeping you off your feet run rampant. He owns your eyes and hands, so you can't escape to reading or looking at things that lead you to search for satisfaction to your intimate desires apart from your husband. You know, sometimes we make fun of men's sexual desires and women seem superior and more holy. But remember, you are less holy if you forget that your body is not your own. Verse 4 says, For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Here's the change in our hearts that God wants for us here. And this is revolutionary, so please don't miss it. Both the husband and the wife naturally think of self in sex and vulnerability and in love. I need something from you. Well, I need something from you. Well, I'm afraid that if we focus on what you need, I won't get what I need. I feel the same way. In fact, it seems like lately we're just trying to keep you happy. But I own you, and it's my turn. But remember, I own you too. If I agree, I'll probably just keep getting a bad deal here. So, no, I'm too tired, or stressed, or busy, or angry, or hurt, or I don't even need to give you a reason why. Gosh, 
This is embarrassing. I'm not opening up again. I'll show you. In fact, I can last longer than you can. In fact, I think this might even give me the right to take matters into my own hands. That's our natural way. It's not enough to believe that we own each other and owe it to each other. We have to stop starting with self. We need to start with our husband or our wife. Imagine a conversation going like this. What can I do to love you tonight, honey? How about the dishes and putting the kids down? I'd love to take a shower. That could be a deal killer right there. But what if every deal killer was an opportunity to ask this question. I belong to you. How can I love you? If wives ask their husbands this, and husbands ask their wives this every morning, and we could overcome the fear that our spouse is selfish and isn't going to offer themselves back, we would be obeying God's teaching, and we would be much happier. Folks, you can't grow closer in intimacy and sexuality by giving less of yourselves to each other. But you say, our circumstances are unique. We have a lot going on in life, and things have gotten a bit tense in our relationship lately. It's just not a good time for us to regularly connect sexually. Well, I'm glad you made that point. Maybe the Corinthians made the same point, because in verse 5, Paul, believe it or not, gets even more detailed and clear. He says, do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. There really is no room for ambiguity here. First, a clear command. Do not deprive one another. This word implies theft or defrauding. Neither is to rob the other of sexual relations. Note also the mutual agreement. There are no sexual politics, no manipulation, no control involved. As Thistleton says in his commentary, new tenderness in Christian marriage lay behind his new insight that sexual union constituted a mutual giving and receiving as an expression of love, not to be denied to either partner. Even with mutual agreement, note how hesitant Paul is to open the door to any reason to abstain from marital sex. Unless, perhaps, by agreement, for a limited time, and only if it's for prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan will not tempt you. I love what Gardner writes here. Given the emphasis on being together again, the danger of temptation... And the hesitancy about the concession in the first place, it seems clear that the Apostle Paul is far from enthusiastic about even this degree of concession to abstinence. Paul barely even grants that prayer is a good reason. So, your circumstances probably cannot hold up to Paul's teaching here. But maybe they can. Let's take it one step at a time together. First step. Are you both agreed that the next few days are not a good time? No? Well, then you'll have to sit down and lovingly work it out, maybe with help. But Paul doesn't include you in this verse. He says you have to agree. Well, let's say you do agree. Step two, for a limited time. How long is a limited time? 
The Jewish rabbis debated this, which is a humorous picture for me to imagine. But the argument between them was whether one week or two week was the time frame, unless the husband was going on a long voyage or a way to study the Torah. Well, Paul doesn't mention how many days he means, but I do think he gives us the answer. How long is a limited time? No longer than you should while protecting each other from the temptations of sexual immorality, while at the same time doing so selflessly in care and love of the other person, as shown clearly in verse 4. So you've both agreed. You understand the time frame. Finally, it must also be for prayer. I believe this could apply as a, a version, a sort of fasting, that you're both willing to give up something you want as a reminder to bring your prayers before God and to show him how committed you are to seeking his help. And please note that even this time of being apart physically should be marked by intimacy and openness. The lack of sexual expression isn't paired with spiritual or emotional separation. So even in this time apart, the picture is of their love for each other deepening through open and intimate prayer. Then they come together again to keep up the shield of protection from temptation and lack of self-control. As if these stipulations weren't enough, Paul adds in verse 6 that he offers this as a concession, not a command. Schreiner says, another way of putting it is that there's no requirement or even inclination on Paul's part to recommend temporary periods of abstinence for married couples. If they wish to refrain from sex, well and good. But Paul does not think such a provision is necessary or required. So here's my admonition to all of you who are married. First, I know that most of us have problems in this area. As Gardner says, nowhere is the unity of the couple more clearly seen. Nowhere can the partners be more giving to each other than in the unashamed nakedness and vulnerability of this relationship. Anything this vulnerable is going to need work. So sit down and talk about it. A good place to start is for each of you to write down how often you think you have sex or are intimate. You may be surprised how different your answers are. Perceptions of time often vary. Then talk about how much each of you would ideally like to have sex or be intimate and come into an agreement on a, a general pattern that will protect you both from temptation. Remember, Paul repeats over and over that this is mutual. No one should be holding more votes than the other. Finally, look into your own heart, husband or wife, and die to self. Learn to be self-sacrificing, generous, loving, considering the other's needs is more important than your own. It is not easy, but if you're working on this attitude, both of you, it will enrich your lives and marriage. The Corinthians were struggling with the question, what should we do about sex and marriage? So they asked Paul, and he has given them very, very good answers from God. If you're struggling and need help, do what the Corinthians did and ask questions. Please talk to me or one of the other elders. We're responsible for your souls, but we can't give you good answers unless you ask us questions. The next few verses, 7 through 9, deal with questions on singleness, which will be covered in a few weeks. So 
Let's now skip down to verses 10 and 11, where Paul answers the second question from the Corinthians about marriage. Number two, what should we do if we're married to another believer? Let's read verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. You'll notice Paul starts his answer here with a strange phrase that it is not he but the Lord who gives this charge. He says this in verse 10, and then down in verse 12, he says the opposite. In his charge to the rest, he says, it is I, not the Lord. And this may, might make it sound like verses 10 and 11 are from God and are authoritative, but that down starting in verse 12, we're only getting Paul's suggestions. But that's not the case. Paul believes that all of his words here written are authoritative as an apostle of Jesus Christ. These are all scripture and breathed out by God. Paul is only commenting on the origin, not the authority of these teachings. Jesus taught on marriage between believers. So Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the teaching that we now find in Mark chapter 10, verses 2 through 12. Then, starting in verse 12, Paul has no teaching from Jesus in the case of a believer married to an unbeliever. So he's providing new teaching for this situation. So the, first, the Corinthians first wanted to know how to handle marriage between two believers. Remember, they came from a Greco-Roman background where getting a divorce was actually very commonplace and very easy. Uh, in, for a lot of people, if you merely separated and remarried someone else, that was sufficient to show that you were divorced. The marriage was over. Because of that, the words separate and divorce in uh, these verses really are virtual synonyms, though divorce does carry a stronger legal context. So what does God want from two believers? Paul answers them by pointing back to Mark 10 and verses 7 through 9, where Jesus answered the Pharisees about divorce by concluding this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Then he explains to his disciples a little bit more in verses 11 and 12 of Mark 10. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So the clear teaching from the Lord and Paul is that when two believers are married, uh, they have been joined as one by God and divorce, and by that I mean the breaking of the covenant between uh, them before God is not allowed. But note that Paul is pastorally sensitive here. He adds that in some cases divorce may happen or have happened in the legal or social context. He says if reconciliation can happen, then that is great. The husband and wife should be reconciled. But Paul understands that in some cases, reconciliation will not be possible. And if that's the case, then the wife and her husband, as he again makes this mutual in the last phrase, must remain unmarried for the rest of his or her life. Now in our day, just as in Corinth, there are as many scenarios as you can think of as it relates to this teaching. Uh, so let me just make a few points briefly to hopefully add some clarity for you. 
When a Christian man and a Christian woman get married, they're joined in two ways. They're joined in some earthly, legal, social sense, as is recognized by the state, by their friends. But they're also joined in marriage by God. A spiritual union. Now, if they break the earthly, legal marriage and divorce, that does not mean that they have broken the covenant before God. In his eyes, they're still married, and that's why they cannot remarry but must remain single. Otherwise, they're committing adultery. If, on the other hand, one of the spouses commits adultery, that is the one scenario that does break the covenant before God. Matthew 5.32 states this clearly. And at that point, the couple must choose to reconcile and renew their covenant before God or to also separate physically and legally. God allows that to happen in that case, not to lower the bonds of marriage, but to show us how serious he is about exclusivity and faithfulness sexually in marriage, even faithfulness in the fire, the fires of life. The elders at Orchard, just like Paul here, see marriage between two believers as sacred, a bond not to be broken, And there is no way to get out of that bond that does not involve sin. So we work to heal, to grow, to reconcile, to restore struggling marriages. And if you're one of those, we want your focus to be on bringing glory to God and joy to each other and your family. And we believe that the Spirit of God and the power of his word are able to do what feels impossible. We have seen him do it before. Having given good answers now to the Corinthians on single people, including widows, which we'll look at in a few weeks, and believers who are married, Paul now provides good answers to the rest, the final group, the people who are now believers but are married to an unbeliever. Number three, what should we do if we're married to an unbeliever? Let's look at the first two verses, starting in verse 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Now again, Paul's not saying these words carry any less weight, but that he's now addressing a situation that was not specifically covered in Jesus' general principle. Many people in Corinth were married as unbelievers, right? And then one of them came to Christ. So now we have the situation of a believer being married to an unbeliever. So the believer is now asking, what should I do? Well, in the Old Testament, remember that Ezra tells Jewish husbands to separate from foreign wives that they had taken. So the Corinthians could have applied this and thought they should separate from an unbeliever because they would in some way become defiled or stained by remaining linked to the unbeliever. Well, Paul teaches here that if a believer is already married to an unbeliever and the the unbelieving partner is willing to stay, that they should stay and the believer should not initiate a divorce. He goes on in verse 14 to give his first reason why and to erase their fears about being made unholy by remaining in the marriage to an unbeliever. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. 
Now, to those from a Jewish background, this would come as a shock. Stay in your marriage to an unbeliever. They will continue to live in sin, yes, but that will not stain you or hurt your status as a Christian. To those who were in his audience from a pagan background, this would also come as a surprise. In Paul's day, most believed that the wife should follow the religion of her husband. In fact, Plutarch said, A wife ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and to know only the gods that her husband believes in, and to shut the front door tight upon all strange rituals and outlandish superstitions. But Paul gives the wives equal standing, and he says, Remain in your belief as Christians. Do not follow your husband's beliefs. Your holy standing as set apart to God actually works in the other direction. Listen to this quote from commentator Thistleton. The consecration, lifestyle, values, and influence of the Christian spouse and parent has a wholesome effect on the unbeliever and on the child also. If the Christian spouse lives in faith, prayer, and a gospel lifestyle, this will permeate the home and, in effect, amount to a consecrating influence on the spouse and child. As we'll see in verse 16, this making holy of a spouse or a child uh, through the believing spouse does not mean a sanctifying or saving faith in Jesus Christ. The spouse and children do not have salvation transferred to them through the believing spouse or parent. If he meant that, then verse 16 would have no meaning. Rather, Paul's saying that your unsaved spouse and children are in a privileged position with you. They benefit from the reflection of Christ lived before them every day. Your behavior, values, and Christ-like love is a special blessing and may lead to the salvation of your spouse and kids. You may be discouraged in this area today. You were not saved maybe when you got married, but then God revealed to you that he sent his son to die for your sins in your place. And you believed and your sins were forgiven. But you've shared this great news with your husband or your wife. And not only have they not believed, they're angry and wish you were the person you used to be. I want to share a story with you. It's a story of an atheist named Lee. I'm going to read you excerpts of his story using his words so that you get the story right from the source. And here's how his story starts. Because I had no belief in God, I really lacked a moral framework for my life. I'm not saying all atheists think this way. I'm just telling you how I looked at the world. If there's no heaven, if there's no hell, if there's no judgment, if there's no ultimate accountability, then the most logical way for me to live my life would be as a hedonist, someone who just pursues pleasure. And that's what I did. So I lived a very immoral and drunken and profane and narcissistic, self-absorbed, really self-destructive in a lot of ways. That was my life. What people saw was me winning awards for investigative reporting. What they didn't see was the other side, which was me literally drunk in the snow in an alley on Saturday night. And I had so much rage inside of me, so much anger. Looking back, it's clear what it was. 
I was always after the perfect high. I was after the ultimate experience of pleasure. But guess what? Everything let me down. Nothing lived up to the hype. So I had a lot of rage. I remember kicking a hole through our living room wall. That was just another day in the Strobel house. Leslie was agnostic. She didn't know what to think about God. Through a relationship with a Christian woman who was a nurse, who shared the gospel with her, who brought her to church, and after many months of checking things out, Leslie came up to me and said, Lee, I made a big decision in my life. I said, what? She said, I decided to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I thought, oh no. For an atheist, this is the worst news you can get. Who knew what she was going to turn into, right? Some holy roller or something. I didn't know. All I knew was, this wasn't part of the deal. This isn't what I signed up for. The first word that went through my mind, divorce. I was going to walk out. But I stuck around, and a couple of things happened. On the positive side, there were a lot of changes in Leslie, in her character, the way she related to me and the kids. They were winsome, they were attractive, and kind of pulled me toward faith. But at the same time, I wanted our old life back. I wanted the old Leslie back. So I thought, what can I do to get her out of this cult that she's gotten involved in? I thought, well, I've got a good idea. I'll just disprove Christianity. Because then I'll get her out of this cult, and we can go back to our life the way it was. Let me pause Lee's story for a couple of minutes to comment. You may be somewhere in this phase right now. Either as the believer, or maybe you're listening to this as the unbeliever. And believer, I plead with you to stay. As Paul teaches us here, do not be the one to leave. However, verse 15 says, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? If your unbelieving spouse refuses to stay with you and initiates the divorce, you're not enslaved to stay in this marriage or to remain single. The meaning of not bound here is clear. This was the precise language in Jewish divorce contracts for freedom to remarry. Verse 16, our final verse, can actually be read two different ways. And they're opposites. One is often called the optimistic and the other, the pessimistic interpretation. The pessimistic way would say, do not try to keep your partner at any cost, for you cannot be sure if you will succeed in winning them to Christ. The optimistic way would say, don't initiate a divorce because you may well win them to Christ. Many commentators have noted that Paul has written this in such a way, maybe on purpose, that both are true. And I must be the eternal optimist because I see both interpretations as pastoral and as encouraging to the person who's married to an unbeliever. First, free yourself of the stress and worry of trying to rescue a marriage at any cost when the unbelieving partner refuses to stay. You are called to live in peace. Find joy and peace in any circumstances. Don't beat yourself up over this. But secondly, make every effort to love and pray and pursue 
your unbelieving spouse, every day you have to live with them, even if it's very difficult, how do you know if God will use your holy influence to save them? All right, I'll close by finishing Lee and Leslie's story. He thought he could disprove Christianity in one weekend, but he ended up spending over two years researching and studying the resurrection and other facts about Jesus. And at the end of that time, this is what happened. I'll read from his words again. Then I read a verse, John 1.12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And I realized, okay, believing the evidence, concluding, reaching the verdict that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God and backed it up by returning from the dead, that's great, that's important. It's not enough. It's not enough. Believe plus receive. I had to receive. Receive what? Receive this free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus purchased for me on the cross when he died as my substitute to pay for all my sin. And when I would receive this free gift of grace, then I would become a child of God. So I got on my knees and I poured out a confession of a lifetime of immorality that would absolutely curl your hair. And at that moment, I received complete and total forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And I became a child of God. As I told Leslie this, she burst into tears. She threw her arms around my neck and she said, Oh, honey, I almost gave up on you a thousand times. She said, When I was a new Christian, I met some women at church and I said, I don't have any hope for my husband. He's a hard-headed, hard-hearted legal editor at the Chicago Tribune. He will never bend his knee to Jesus. And this one elderly saint put her arm around her shoulder and pulled her to the side and she said, Oh, Leslie, no one is beyond hope. And she gave a verse to her from the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36, 26, that says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove from, your, from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so what I never knew at the time, this whole two years that I'm on this investigative journey, what I never knew is that every day my wife, behind the scenes, was on her knees praying that verse for me. And can I tell you what happened? Starting on that Sunday afternoon, now that I had received Jesus as my forgiver and leader, now that I had become a child of God, and then over time, as I was baptized and became part of a vibrant church, as I learned to read the Bible with fresh eyes, as I learned to worship, as I learned to pray, God began to answer Leslie's prayers. Because my values changed, and my morality changed, and my character changed, and my priorities and my relationships, and my worldview and my philosophy 
and my parenting and our marriage, all these things over time began to change for the good. And in four or five months, my little girl came up to Leslie and said, I want God to do for me what he's done for daddy. Believer, cling to this story. And the verses that Paul has given you and pray that you can live them every day in your own life that by God's grace it could be your story too. So in these verses, God has shown us a number of things, answers to difficult questions in marriage. And God has a lesson for every one of us today. Don't push it away. Where can you draw strength from the Lord? Where can you grow from these things that we've covered? Dying to self will be more helpful than any technique as it relates to sex, to love, intimacy, and even in reflecting the gospel to your spouse every day. So let's take this to heart, and may God do a great work in each one of us, in our marriages, in our families. Let's close in prayer. God, once more, we thank you this morning for the Corinthians, for the fact that they had the courage to write their questions and share their confusion with Paul, and that you inspired him with your Holy Spirit to write down these holy words that are so good. Thank you for these good answers to difficult marriage questions. We have the answers now, Lord, but what remains is for us to receive them and apply them to our lives. We need your help here as well. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in each of us to see where we need to grow and to cling to you and believe that these things are true and to be patient to see the results in our lives and in our spouses, in our love, uh, and in the salvation even of our husband or wife and our kids. I pray this all in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.